Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Giselle Donnelly, and I'm a senior fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. I am joined by my colleagues. Yulia Joja with the Middle East Institute, Georgetown and George Washington Universities, and... Dali Burujaj with the American Enterprise Institute. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that have erupted along a line which runs from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and why these are important to the United States. Today, it's just going to be three of us discussing a potpourri of issues. It's been some time since we've uh, done one of these roundup issues. And with the Thanksgiving holiday approaching, uh, we want to catch you up uh, before you sit down to eat too much food, which uh, would be a very Eastern Front approach to any holiday. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. I think we should start, Yulia, with the the uh, uptick in uh, Russian missile strikes um, against Ukrainian civilian targets and particularly infrastructure targets. Uh, we're getting reports that uh, uh, electricity in Kiev and elsewhere is down to just a few hours a day and in an unpredictable pattern. Uh, after failing on so many fronts or in many aspects of their war efforts, uh, the Russians seem to have finally hit upon something that uh, is making a difference in the conflict. Yulia, you have been following this very closely. How do you see the situation? Yeah, I think um, we, you know, I've been immersed over the last few hours in social media, looking like many of us at the horrifying pictures of the latest um massive missile attack um, from the Russians targeting both civilian infrastructure, but also energy infrastructure. The latest news out of, um, out or the latest results is that all of Ukraine now 24 hours without electricity and much of it without water and uh, a part of Moldova as well. We've seen um, with previous missile attacks um, that Moldova has been affected now, including the building of the Moldovan Ministry of Foreign Affairs in the capital is without electricity. And so what the Europeans are saying about this, particularly focused on Central and Eastern Europe up to Germany, is that this is sort of Russia's plan B in the works in that they are trying to destroy unity and, um, and really the fighting spirit both in Ukraine and destroy the support in the West, creating more refugee waves and trying basically to um, increase the uh, opposition of public opinion um, in across the EU, really, to helping more Ukraine. And while we see with every one of these missile attacks, a new aid package being released by the United States uh, focused on military and by the EU with some amazing initiatives over the last just few weeks. Um, it's It feels like patchwork. It, it feels like the Russians are really managing to succeed in this mass terror against, uh, you know, the largest territorial country in, in Europe. And it feels a little bit as if 
we are not really changing the strategy. We are continuing this this approach of being too late, too little, and gradual, right? We talked so many times about self-deterrence on this podcast, but I think it's worth repeating and asking for your thoughts here one more time um, because, you know, we see the missile strikes as a failure of delivering missile defense in the early months of war. Um, we see success of Russia targeting the infrastructure because we didn't prepare Ukraine for this. Um, and we see the spread of the conflict um, with disastrous humanitarian um, implications in other countries now too. And it's because of our own failures, but I don't see in, in strategy, but I don't see the administration here or the EU and member states over there in Europe as really considering seriously how to change the strategy so we're not facing another few years of war in which, you know, at the end of the next year, if Putin manages to continue um, with these missile strikes to really shred Ukraine to pieces. That's, um, that's what my sort of understanding is of of what we're looking at today with with pieces again from the administration from the eu but more as patchwork and with major consequences in the region well, well i have to say i agree with pretty much every word you said delabor find find a ray of light in here for us if you can well so so, so there is the um... oh, pylon that's okay too <laughs> There's a sort of like Western European American side to the story, us holding bag assistance that would help Ukrainians defend themselves. A few weeks ago, President Biden said that you know we didn't want to give Ukrainians missiles that could reach Russia, right? Answering a journalist question. And and so it creates this asymmetry where like obviously Russians are launching these rockets from Russia and and Ukrainians are not in a position to bond and it's to me not exactly understandable why we are handicapping them in in this particular way but 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 the other question obviously is you know like is it russia russians like being so desperate as to as to having recourse to these tactics like with the ambition of obviously terrorizing the population creating a humanitarian crisis thinking that this would somehow strengthen their hands when it comes to negotiations. Um, and is it, you know, is, how likely is that tactic to succeed? Uh, and I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves and, and that I suppose depends on how long they can keep it on, like how many, like how, how much sort of munition they have and rockets they can sort of throw at civilian infrastructure and how lasting the damage they can create is going to be. And also on, on, you know, like what's the sort of politics of this in in, in Ukraine? I mean, the, I guess, like our baseline assumption between the three of us is that, and which seems validated by, by what we hear from Ukrainians, is that it just makes them more angry rather than uh, sort of desperate for to, to sue for peace. To begin with, um, I don't know how helpful it is to simply characterize these strikes as terrorist attacks. I mean, they certainly do have a frightening effect on the cities that that are targeted but it's, it's hardly unprecedented in war to try to uh, eliminate the economic and social structure that supports 
uh, which in Ukraine's case has been a hugely successful uh, military effort. I mean, uh, you know, Sherman's march to the sea, uh, the heavy bombing of Germany and Japan during World War II. It is done with kind of a uniquely Russian uh, brutality and imprecision and not intending for a special precision. So it's done in a Russian way, but it's not necessarily unprecedented in a conflict. And in some ways, I'm a little surprised that it took them so long to get around to this. It's just a question that... that um, historians will want to examine. I, I'm sure you're right that, at least for the immediate term, that it's hardening Ukrainian resolve. But the question is, of course, as Yulia suggested, what will this do to American resolve um, and Western resolve, uh, more generally speaking? Uh, Yulia's point that the Biden administration has been reactive, to put it, you know, uh, sort of uh, euphemistically to the situation has long been the case. And the fact that they remain two steps behind what's happening on the battlefront could have consequences over the course of time. And I think it will also revive the Ukraine can't win narrative or can't win, you can't save the village without also uh, destroying it. You know, remains a... Uh, a constant danger, you know. So if if this continues to happen, and Dalibor, you, I would just say you're quite right. the The way to mitigate, uh, um, or or raise the cost of such strikes is to hold Russian targets at risk as well. You, you know, no air or missile defense is going to be perfectly sanitary, especially when the Russians. Uh, are willing to shoot a lot of weaponry and use their most sophisticated uh, long-range strike weapons uh, to uh, in, in this campaign. Uh, so, you know, the, the Biden administration is not going to have unlimited opportunities to, uh, you know, add a few spices to the recipe, see what it tastes like, uh, rinse and repeat. That, 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 that's the thing. So, so if you imagine a situation in which, say, there is a real sort of humanitarian crisis in Kiev, no electricity, no water, you know, sewage doesn't work. So you have to like move, you know, three million people out of the city uh, to a safer location. Or have an outbreak. Like of, it's, uh, it's going to be horrifying to, to, to watch. And I wonder if the reaction of the Biden team and others will be to say, well, in, enough is enough. We now have to sort of step up in terms of what we are giving the Ukrainians so that they can hit Russians back on the Russian territory or whether it will be, oh, this is just too horrifying to watch. Can't, you know, can't this war just end now? That would be translated into some effort to to sort of get, get Ukrainians to... Yeah. To arm twist the Ukrainians to, to come to the table, yeah. I wonder, Dalibor, if you can offer us a bit more an in, of an in-depth look into the economic consequences in Ukraine and, and maybe also in what the EU is doing or not doing to help. Um, we've seen sort of over the last 
few weeks, something that I guess we expected, that the United States Congress Biden administration is increasingly expecting for very good reasons the EU to bear the brunt of economic aspects in in Ukraine because the United States is leading on military aid. And so it's only right it is a European security problem. And we've heard um, even here on the podcast, you know, voices that are saying that the EU is now stepping up. We see it certainly rhetorically with just today's um, declaration of the Euro resolution of the European Parliament that Russia is a state sponsor of terrorism, but that's just the rhetorical side. So can you um, talk us through where you see Ukraine and EU aid um, in the really short and medium term beyond, you know, what we keep talking about reconstruction, which seems even further away today? So people who... uh are skeptical of, of US assistance to Ukraine. They they typically say, and I've heard this on the Hill, you know, like we want the Ukrainians to win this war, but like we, we can't be sending them just money. Like we can't be writing them these sort of checks. There's all this sort of other stuff other than weapons that's being sort of sent to Ukraine, particularly just sort of you know transfers of, of cash. And th- th- that to me is just thoroughly thoroughly misguided and I'll I'll explain why. Um on this on this narrow question of Reconstruction. I tend to be more blasé than 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 others about you know what it takes to reconstruct Ukraine. Like you know, Ukrainians need to win, and and they have all this stuff that got damaged or destroyed during the world. They just rebuild it. Like it's not the first time in history that this has happened. Like you just need you know resources to do it. You need a political situation that allows for that to happen. Like I'm I'm, I'm the, <clears throat> this sort of idea that like piling brick on brick and rebuilding bridges is somehow like an impenetrable <laughs> sort of policy challenge. Like 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 that, that that to me is just not convincing. What is a real challenge though is that you have this you know immediate sort of economic challenge that is facing Ukrainians. So their GDP is shrinking by thirty five percent this year. They have this massive sort of financing gap uh, that has to be filled somehow. And it's being filled by the US, by the EU, by the IMF, smaller bilateral donors. They basically need three, four billion dollars a month to to sort of keep their public budget afloat and keep some degree of, of financial stability. And and I think it's really important, it's really in our interest to give them that, uh, for the following reason, which is that the Ukrainians since 2014 have made meaningful strides towards becoming a sort of normal functioning market economy. And if we don't give them this financing now, what they will have to do is to essentially run a wartime economy. They'll have to, you know, re-nationalize everything. They will have to subject, you know, they will have to introduce price controls. They will have to do all kinds of things that happen in wartime Right, that happened in the UK during the Second World War, and 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 when they happen in a country that doesn't necessarily have the sort of strongest institutional foundations, they will likely stay until after the war, and they will likely continue sort of debilitating the sort of economic life in Ukraine. Like in the UK case, I think is very illustrative because the Brits went further down the road of, you know, doing sort of all kinds of economic controls in the 40s than, say, the French, which were sort of, you know, defeated 
rapidly and and, and then went back to the cafe and, and, and then the, you know the, the germans were basically starting from scratch in 1945 so so what happened after the war was that the brits were sort of living with the sort of post-victorian economy uh in, in afflicted with all kinds of sort of wartime controls that existed until the 70s and and where you had this continental europe booming during the 30 glorious years the brits were just sort of you know the the sort of gap between the british and and, and the rest of europe was, was just opening far wider and and so so the real risk is that if we you know don't bankroll the ukrainians now they will have to do things that will go directly against their sort of and our long-term interest of bringing them into the eu making them into a you know normal european country and and with the sort of political economy of this being much more difficult than in the uk where like this isn't you know this wartime controls were not a threat to british democracy like in the ukrainian context with the oligarchs with like all people all, all sorts of people who could sort of benefit from a sort of more centralized sort of quasi-Soviet system coming back, uh, it could just, you know, irretrievably damage the prospects of Ukrainians doing what they set out to do in 2014 with with the revolution of dignity. Dilipor, let me push you on this uh, a little bit. Um, uh, this past week, all congratulations to you, Mark, the release of your EU book. So you should give a been a shameless plug to that, but it also uh, there was a, a rollout event that I found very interesting, but also very frustrating at the same time. Trying to think about the EU in the context of not only the larger, you know, sort of return of geopolitics to international affairs, but in particular to this question of post-war. Ukraine, um, just to make a hash out of things. Your approach was that we should understand that the EU is a limited uh, institution in, in, in many ways, and we should just sort of take it at face value. It's made important contributions to the European peace that we always talk about and the European prosperity that we always talk about. However, its track record as a vehicle for post-Cold War reconstruction in Eastern Europe can be read in a number of ways. And that was in the context of the post-Cold War peace. I mean, it's hard to imagine a more congenial set of international conditions for, you know, to build the, the sort of um, European order that the EU is is striving to create. So both I'm wondering, can the EU step up to the post-war Ukrainian task, even if we take uh, the security questions off the table? And conversely, if it does not, might that, you know, call the whole European project more seriously in the question than it already has been done. I'm sorry for the convoluted question. So there, there are many different sort of you sides. Only yourself, you only yourself to blame. There, there are different sides to this. One is obviously that the Ukrainians want to join the European Union. They sort of made that clear repeatedly. There are yeah. you know, benefits involved in that. The challenge to them joining the EU is that you know there isn't exactly, or there wasn't prior to this war, let's see how things 
change as a result of the war. There hasn't been in a whole lot of sort of appetite on the EU side to to enlarge further to the east because of you know France and Germany. Let's 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 put it in. and because of you know like it, it would just make governance in the EU more complicated. And and I think there are also legitimate questions about you know sort of strength of institutions, quality of institutions. People look at you know Hungary and Poland. They think oh what the headache that these countries are in, and now they are you know vetoing stuff. Like what would happen if we bring in you know Ukrainians and they'll have a change of government in a few years and 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 so on and so forth. So 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 those are legitimate questions, uh, but like we live in a, in a moment that carries with itself a degree of urgency where you have to sort of seize the opportunity. So so one thing that's heartening is 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 that uh, the Commission President von Ursula von der Leyen, when she had her State of the Union address in September to the European Parliament, she said that the Ukrainians should have access to the EU single market as soon as possible. So outside of the sort of strictures of full EU membership, uh, and I think that is a very useful sort of shift in thinking, right? Especially when you sort of compare it with, you know, the, the, the EU playing hardball with the Brits. Like, you know, you can't just cherry pick aspects of EU membership if you like. Well, so does she speak... For- is she a, an anomaly or an indicator, or a, you know, a, does she reflect a broad sentiment? I think she reflects a sort of sentiment in Brussels. Might be difficult to get some of the member states on board for this, but but I think for others it should be a no-brainer uh, that that we need to sort of front-load assistance. Uh, I mean, the EU itself has pledged eighteen billion dollars in financial assistance to Ukraine for next year, which is, a, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's sort of comparable, if not more than than what the US is giving. And I think especially the, the more we get into this reconstruction period and, and Ukraine in the process of accession, being eligible for various kinds of EU funding, like the EU will become the, the sort of largest, largest funder and largest sort of, you know, investor and, and, and biggest player in, in the so reconstruction. So you're, you're reasonably optimistic so I'm, about I'm that. reasonably optimistic about that, but, but I think there needs to be, I guess, an understanding in, in across the EU that, that this is a new situation, that this is not like sort of, you know, like we negotiate with Serbia for 15 years and and, and if it doesn't go anywhere, who cares? Uh, like I think we are, you know, like the EU is going to be given this chance only once. And and I think it needs to act on it. And and I think that's going to be the real test. Yeah, and I think there is significant doubt to sort of wrap this topic up. I share your sentiment that she, von der Leyen, reflects uh, a certain position, but I don't know if you know, because we still have unanimity within the EU on crucial aspects, it's just not enough. And we have the problems of member states on a spectrum, right, with Germany and France being the culprits in uh, when it comes to Ukraine, uh, both in the EU and uh, in NATO. But we have more than that. We have, you know, the Netherlands and Austria now vetoing Um, Schengen to Romania, Bulgaria, and Croatia that is telling of how problematic the lack of consensus is. And I guess the main culprit here, the the main problem 
um, that leaves, in my understanding, the EU as a functioning body, body on these things unresolved, and, and that's Hungary. We can make comments about Orban's scarf over the last few days, his great Hungary scarf, football scarf or soccer scarf that he's wearing um, that claims, you know, revisionist policies vis-a-vis -vis about five or six countries um, and territories around Hungary. But, but Hungary is vetoing that package of 18 billion so that they can get their package of 15 billion for tiny Hungary. Um, and so does that give us any chance for the EU to overhaul itself for Brussels to get in uh, enough uh, impediment, uh, enough um, power to overcome, like in previous sanctions packages, the issue of Hungary and others? Well, that's, you know, that, that, that's a good question. And the sort of answer I would offer through my book is that if you can't do it at EU27, you need to do it through smaller coalitions of the willing. Mm. And uh, and I mean, like we know who the which which the countries are that that are able and willing to step up. And and I guess you know the broader the coalition is, the better. But but the sort of current strategy in which we sort of allow the you know Hungaries of Europe to hold everybody else hostage, like, I don't think that's 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 terribly viable, right? I wonder if we could switch radically to the Black Sea front. Yes. Uh, yes. Um, for, to begin with, uh, the Ukrainians continue to, you know, sort of poke their heads up above the parapet on a, a periodic basis with strikes, um, both in Crimea and uh, against Russian warships and the like. Uh, but it always reminds us uh, of yet another truculent ally in the form of uh, Turkey, um, which never fails to seize an opportunity to uh, twist European and American tales uh, whenever, uh, whenever it arises. And um, Pasha Erdogan has used the occasion of this terrorist attack um, to uh, revert to type Yulia, I mean, attack this question in any way that, uh, uh, that that suits you, but let's talk about both Turkey and the sort of overall uh, picture in the Black Sea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where do I start and what do I say? So <laughs> Let me count the ways. <laughs> um, if um, if uh, our audience is interested, if members of our audience are interested in um, U.S., Black Sea strategy and Black Sea policy. I would. Recommend... Are you gonna Are you gonna do some shameless promotion here? No, this time I'm just <laughs> okay. gonna claim and shame. <laughs> okay. um, I would recommend that they look at the Senate hearing from last week on the South Caucasus, where Senator Shaheen asks about her and Mitt Romney's. Um, legislation proposal for the United States administration to adopt a Black Sea strategy in the logic of beyond Ukraine, we need to deter and contain and think about U.S. posture in the region. By the way, France already has a Black Sea strategy or vision or paper or something. 
and <laughs> and <laughs> set of diktats. Yeah, and so the the administration replies who that was um, uh, in hearing um, that there's no timeline and no answer to that, um, and that the immediate thing is just Ukraine. And with many more details through one and a half hours meeting, the chair of the Committee on Foreign Relations concludes that this was one of the most disappointing hearings he's ever chaired. With that in mind, <laughs> this is um, let's focus a little bit on Turkey, and I'll tell you a little bit about my experience without being a recent experience without being able to name and shame to the same extent. Um, recently, I was um, briefing a part of the U.S. government on exactly these issues, and as unsurprisingly, a lot of it revolved around Turkey. Now, my takeaway here is that we in Washington, not just the administration, but across the board, are underestimating the problem that Turkey poses. Through this war, in a very skillful manner, Pasha Erdogan, as you call him, I love that, um, has been has managed to do exactly what they want. Um, they block or they open up um, the Black Sea the, to the extent that they want, including towards neighboring countries, um, not just Russia, and um, and of course continue to boycott everything in terms of an increase of U.S. presence in the region when it comes to their ways of controlling particularly maritime. And we have reached a point where I've heard colleagues and, you know, many people nodding to the question or hypothesis of whether we should consider not just stopping, but reducing um, the U.S. posture and uh, really presence on the ground in the Black Sea region as to not provoke Turkey. Um, and having building that into the fact that the only major accomplishment so far in foreign policy of the Biden administration is Finland and Sweden joining NATO, and that's being blocked indefinitely by Turkey. It is unbelievable to me how um, how much we underestimate to to the extent to which Turkey is a problem. Sure, they oppose, they help Ukraine, they help with drones, um, they helped with the grain deal, but. They do that just because it is in their immediate interest. Um, but when it comes to them as an ally and when it comes to building out strategically Western presence in the region to look beyond this war and, again, patchwork a little bit the mistakes that we've had that um, basically disabled deterrence against um, Russia in the region, um, we are in a really bad spot, and I don't see, I don't see our colleagues, you know, really banging on on Turkey as much um, as they should. So, you know, now we're discussing whether we should be giving them F-16s to somewhat resolve the the problem. I agree that we also need incentives, but the greater long-term problem of Turkey is just going to remain independent of elections next year, in my understanding. We've gone on for uh, some time, but I'd like to propose one last, uh, even more gaseous uh, 
subject uh, for the holidays, at least. Um, <laughs> you know, it seems to me that this is a moment where the the thing that sort of binds all these questions together is, you know, kind of how big is Europe and what is is Europe? Is it a you know collection of nations and peoples uh, bound together by common economic interests, uh, et cetera, et cetera, but still divided culturally and in other ways? Or, or is it a different kind of community? And of course, what should America want the outcome to be, and what? How should Americans accomplish that outcome? I, I will. Refrain from leading the witnesses any further, but Dalibor, you this is sort of a, a softball yeah, for you. I, I, I don't I think, think. There, no, I, I don't think there is an easy answer to 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 your question, right? So, so the European Union is an organization that is one of its kind, unlike other efforts at regional integration. I mean, it's you know it's far deeper than African Union or ASEAN or. Or the soft other, bigotry of low those, expectations emerges again. Which, I mean, you can say, okay, those organizations have sort of modeled after the EU to a certain extent. Uh, but, it's you know, it's clearly far far more than just an international organization while being far less than a, than a sort of coherent federal federal state. So, so, so that sort of sense in which the EU is half pregnant... As, as, as some people put it, I think that's going to remain there. Like there, there, there are areas where, you know, if you are a policymaker in Washington, your interlocutor is in Brussels and you want to deal with the European Commission and you can be sort of confident that what, you know, is agreed, you know, pacta sun servanda at, at the sort of EU level. Uh, in other contexts, you just can't, avoid dealing with individual European countries and their interests and their parochialisms and their, their, their idiosyncrasies. And I don't think that's going to get any any less complicated than that. I think it, you know, it requires the American policymakers to sort of invest heavily in sort of, you know, relevant expertise. And it's, you know, that, that, that sort of complaint that whom do I call if I want to talk to Europe? I think that's, that's, that's just, you know, that's part of the transatlantic you know, condition. I don't think we can get away from that. Well, but, I mean, do we have a an idea where Europe ends in the East, where where the actual Eastern Front might lie, or is there a natural answer to that question? I I don't. I think it's part as complicated as it is, and I'm curious to hear Dalibor on this. The purpose to me so far has been the more east you go, the less people want to stop because it's like an immediate thing. You want your neighbors to be safe so that you are safer. You want your neighbors to be prosperous so that you are more prosperous, etc. with democracy. Um, and so, you know, we have then the question of is Georgia part? It's not part of the yeah. European continent. But we certainly want Georgia to be part of the European Union and, and the Georgian people want that. And so, you know, if Georgia one day will become that, where does the European Union stop? I don't think. Uh, and then you have the maybe the Western European perspective that would argue, you know, 
in the 90s argued that the Baltics, because they were part of the Soviet Union, should not be part of the European Union. So it's the opposite train within Europe to say, no, Europe has already stopped at our borders. The further away we are, the less we want from the border, the less we want it to expand. Um, I don't know if Dalibor sees that any different. No, I think to me it's not a question of geography, or, or the sort of geographical question is, is sort of less interesting than than the sort of political and institutional one. It wasn't so long ago, again like the early noughties, late nineteen nineties, that people were thinking, well, maybe we can have a free and democratic Russia join some form of you know Euro Atlantic cooperation, including possibly the alliance and. And 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 the EU. I mean, that that seems you know that prospect seems very remote, but I think it's you know perfectly reasonable for the Georgians to say, you know, look, and, and not just by making sort of references to obscure history, but by saying like we've done all these reforms and we, and I know that the Georgian situation is sort of complicated, but you know, at, at a slightly different time, like they could make a very sort of convincing, credible case. Well, we could cherry pick the Georgia, the Georgia that we uh, will advance as a model. Yeah, so the so Georgia of my dreams, like could make a very sort of convincing case for, for, for you know, yeah. being part of the, of wanting to be part of the EU and, 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 and belonging, belonging there. So, so, so I think that's where the focus of the, of, of the efforts should be to, to sort of promote and sustain, you know, democratization and 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 and, and sort of institutional change that 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 helps these countries, you know, be free societies and and and, and govern themselves as you know, you know, civilized European countries they can they can they can be. There is nothing intrinsic about the Belarusians who were, you know, they spent, you know, they 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 spend more time in a common state with the Lithuanians. The Grand Duchy than they did with with, mm-hmm. with, 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 with with the Russians. I don't see why they, you know, under different political circumstances, under different leadership, could not be part of the same same club as 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 the you know Lithuanian friends. So, is Europe being European a matter of self identity? <laughs> it's funny. It's coming from you, and, and I, I think it's, yeah. it's sort of. It's, yeah, no, yes, I, I could barely say that with a straight face. You know, <laughs> I was really shocked that you're right. <laughs> and the, to me, the answer is of course. So uh, he said yes. Yeah. Well, I'm, yes. I'm, you know, in the IR theory, a convinced constructivist. So yeah, it's all about self perception and self identity. Um, yeah. Do we leave it at this or do we have maybe a few more minutes for for the military side? Oh, okay. Well, um we we talked a, a good deal about drones. Um but but maybe we could just add a postscript on on that. Just looking at the uh and apropos of Turkey and the and the Turkish drones that yeah. played such a a large role at the beginning of the war, but sort of had their moment in the sun um, and as battlefield conditions have changed and the Russians have adapted to that. And of course, uh, now the sort of shoe is on the other foot and it's up to uh, Ukraine and its allies to to respond to the various missile attacks and the Iranian-made drone at- attacks. I, I would just say that um, you know, we'll we'll need to study this very 
closely to really derive hard and fast lessons about advantages and constraints that unmanned uh, systems bring to this kind of battlefield. There's so much about this war that's sui generis that I'm getting less and less confident uh, about, uh, you know, larger lessons for the conduct of of war from the particular examples. I mean, just to, to take a converse example, I mean, many people thought that the advent of drones would completely eliminate the need and that the experience or incompetence of the Russian military was a proved that armored vehicles mm. were no longer could play a role in the battlefield. I, I don't feel confident about that. I, I mean, I was not never convinced in the first place, but, but, but it is fascinating um, to what extent, yeah, it's to what extent uh, sort of piloted airplanes have played a, like, you know, essentially no role in, 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 in this conflict. Well, the, the Ukrainian Air Force okay. has played a really critical role in, deny, in denying the, the Russians, we recall, were widely assumed to have instant and constant air supremacy and the ability to rule. But like, the once they were sort of like reminded of the fact that um, they didn't have that, they just they just stopped. And, and I wonder, like, yes. if the lesson, like, if we are going to speculate about the future of conflict is, 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 is that you know, countries will be very reluctant to send airplanes with pilots into war zones where they could be shut down. Truly the reaffirmation of uh, a conventional but still very wise point is that the ability to combine capabilities, to combine arms, to combine systems is really the thing that makes for an enduring military advantage. That There may be silver bullets but there are they are still many in number and you have to figure out how to adapt the capability i mean the ukrainians have so far overachieved what the expectation was and for all the the help and we're not even talking about the logistical questions which has been the russians largest failure and possibly the ukrainians biggest success um, is to be able to do those things that they can sustain the 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 uh, the quick and dirty takeaways about unmanned systems, about aerial drones, about long range precision strike, all the sort of uh, uh, you know things that have made headlines in military affairs over the last generation have not necessarily survived uh, the battlefield realities. So could could I ask you on that before we sort of go and start like? You know, prepping our turkeys and 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 cranberry sauces and 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 so on. like one one very specific drone related question. So 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 there has been this letter urging the Biden administration to give Ukrainians the Gray Eagle drones, which unlike the Turkish Bayraktars are, and I'm speaking as a sort of yeah. you know, complete idiot on these matters. Like you know, these, these seem like big, almost like airplanes. They are armed. They probably. F- can fly fly at far higher altitudes. Like like how how much of a difference do you think it would make? How many of such drones can we reasonably send? How expensive would the policy of sending gray eagles to Ukraine be? Uh, what would be sort of the rate of return? 
in, in, in your assessment? And maybe to pile on to this question a bit broader is, you know, looking back at the conflict again in simplistic terms, we've seen a couple of superstar capabilities that have um, that have changed the name of the game in Ukraine. Initially it was the Bayraktars, then it's been the HIMARS. So are Grey Eagles or is it something else that you think if they were on the ground would become, you know, the third sort of superstar capability that can um, give uh, can give the Ukrainians a major advantage and and change the name of the game? Well, um, just to describe what a Grey Eagle is for um, for, for us, really. <laughs> okay, okay. So um, uh, it's both older than and more sophisticated than the Turkish Bayraktar model. Uh, it's a little bit more stealthy. It goes farther. It's a bigger aircraft, but it's, it doesn't. Even though it has. Um, you know, uh, laser guided missiles on it. They're, they're not, it's not a heavily armed, you know, it's not like an unmanned bomber or something like that. So it's a multi-purpose plane. Is, there are not that many of them. And it was a product of the uh, post 9-11 uh, wars. It filled a niche, you know, uh, first of all, we bought basically every unmanned vehicle that that could be bought or that was in development. And this is one of them. I, I don't know how many exactly were built. I think, you know, and w whether there are lots in the pipeline still, there may be as few as 50 or 60 of them extant. I, yeah, I don't think it's going, it, you would have to use it as a strike vehicle against very high value targets. You know, so there, there, there are things that the Ukrainians could use it for. It could be really useful in sort of a Crimea campaign uh, of the sort that the uh, Ukrainians excel at in terms of sort of choking off uh, uh, the logistics uh, supply systems. Um, but as as you'd still need more munitions and more weapons and uh, um, in, in order to really accelerate a Ukrainian victory. So it could be a piece of the puzzle, but only a, a, a partial solution. Uh, again, I've, if I had one wish about what I would give the Ukrainians, it would be still first and foremost, the ATACMs. Um, and, and apropos of manned aircraft, there's a lot of US and NATO F-16s sitting around that could really, really make a difference with longer range. You know, once the Russians are under the gun, it's much safer to fly. You know, so if they turn their air defense radars on, they get zapped. We've seen that. That's one thing that's really made a difference in, in grounding the Russian Air Force is our ability to supply anti-radiation missiles that were fitted on Ukrainian MiGs. You know, pretty good and quick uh, solution, but one that's had pretty severe effects on the Russians. So, again, giving the Ukrainians multiple ways to 
strike Russian targets, you know, not only uh, in Crimea, but, you know, why Russian railroad hubs in Russia that are vital supply lines. That's a perfectly legitimate military target, much more so than the um, electrical grid in Ukraine. So, um, yeah, the the, uh, Great Eagles would be of some use, but yeah, not a tide turning contribution. I don't I don't think maybe there's something I'm missing, but it's an initial quick reaction. Shall we uh shall we turn to uh, what are we all having? I'm not making turkey. You are I'm making beef well I am not. No, I'm making beef wellington. We have duck. There we go. Oh gosh. Julia? Um I'm not doing anything. I'm letting others cook for me this year. <laughs> You're going to the Indian restaurant, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, on that diverse uh, and uniquely American uh, uh, Thanksgiving note, uh, thank you for joining us on the Eastern Front. Our podcast is dedicated to the security challenges that have arisen along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more of this stuff and additional content uh, on our website at aei.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I should also mention two things. Uh, the Eastern Front's newsletter is, has been up and running for some time now. Uh, you can sign up for it uh, in the link or through the link included in the show notes. It comes out every other week with an update of newly released episodes, uh, uh, unique questions and answers with the three of us. And it's a good place to follow our, uh, our outside writings Uh, on these issues. If you enjoyed the episode or indeed any of our podcasts, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Happy holidays to everybody. uh, And thank you for joining us until next time uh, for my colleagues. Julia Sosa and I'm Giselle Donnelly. Uh, See you next time.